Welcome to The Honest Pour with John Lennart, where we go beyond the bottle to connect you with the people and places that make each wine so unique. When your winemaking career begins by being surrounded by names like Rudd, Ramey, and Barrett, you know you're in the right place. For Nick Bleeker, that just happened to be in his family's vineyard, which he's been working since he was four years old. Jericho Canyon is situated in a secluded area of Calistoga. I visited Nick there back in November, and we climbed the steep west slope of the canyon to view the vineyard. Here, we talked about the history of the place and why it produces such amazing fruit. Then, we headed into the cave to taste some of the very special wines he's making. This episode of The Honest Pour is sponsored in part by Foodinter.com, bringing you the stories of Chicago's chefs, restaurants, and people who make food all over town. Foodinter.com. Hi, I'm John Lennart. Today with me is Nicholas Bleeker of Jericho Canyon Vineyard. Welcome to the show. Thank you for coming up here. Tell me where we're standing right now. We are standing at the top of block three and four up in uh, Calistoga here at Jericho Canyon Vineyard, looking out across pretty much our entire property. Uh, what are you growing here? What kind of grapes? This is Calistoga, so it's one of the warmest regions in the Napa Valley. So we grow all Bordeaux varietals, Cabernet Sauvignon, majority is about three quarters of the planting, uh, Merlot, Cabernet Franc, Petit Verdot, and then we just put in a tiny bit, 0.4 acres of Malbec, and then Supplement it a little bit with the uh, 2.4 acres of Sauvignon Blanc for our white wine. This is a, a stunning property. Um, Calistoga is kind of a, a funny area when it comes to to what type of soils you have because it's so many different places coming together. What are we looking at soil type here? We're right at the base of Mount St. Helena. Uh, there's a little bit of a knoll between us and the mountain where we are, but from uh, from the eastern hillside when you look back, the canyon just turns into Mount St. Helena. So it's all compressed volcanic ash, um, stony clay loam, boomer clay loam. But so it's sort of that whole wash of the volcanic uh, hillsides into the canyon here. Yeah, just sweeping through. And But I mean, we say that that's kind of our soil type and everything, but in reality, we have about two feet of soil. So there isn't really- Oh, so it's not super deep. <laughs> it's mostly just rock. Compressed okay. volcanic ash underneath there. And because of that, you do you do some irrigation come summertime? Yeah, we definitely have to irrigate. The vines would die pretty quickly without the supplemental water. What would you say the terroir of the canyon is? It's a very unique site. It covers the entire Jericho Canyon, both hill, both sides of the hills, the walls of the canyon. So there are innumerable microclimates throughout the entire property. So when we're picking and processing and making wine, we're breaking the entire vineyard down, which is a 40-acre vineyard, into about 40 different lots, um, choosing each little piece and picking it all separately, and each one makes a completely different wine. And that's kind of how we use it, because it's an estate vineyard. We're only using this fruit. We have all these different wines that we're creating that we can use to then blend together to make three normally three cohesive blends. So you do three bottlings, and what's your total production? Average around 1,500 cases. Okay, so not, not a big not a big production at all then. No. But good size. Mm-hmm. Tell me about the history of the place. Where, where did it start? How, how did it come to your family? So my parents were living down in the San Francisco Bay Area in San Mateo, and they decided once they had my two older sisters that they wanted to move out away from the city, get out to some open land, and search for a couple years, pretty much, just looking for property up here in Napa. Eventually, they found a for sale by owner ad in the San Francisco Chronicle. 
and that was this. It was an old cattle ranch, and they came up and came through here and uh, decided this was exactly where they wanted to be. It was Calistoga back in the 80s and 89, so it was quite different than it is now. A little bit of uh, backcountry back then. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But, but it's kind of like having a whole canyon. It's almost like buying your own little island, you know? It's sort of very uh, Isolated. private. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, private. I think private's more the word. Yeah. It is definitely that, which is great for, I mean, having a vineyard and everything because you don't have neighbors, really, that are going to be infecting or bring anything into you you're you have your own zone where you're not worried about anything coming in that you're not bringing in yourself and your folks bought it and planted vineyard right away then yep yeah they started planting pretty much immediately they had to put in all the terraces up at the very top of the eastern slope that's about it's a pretty steep vineyard here we i did some <laughs> huffing and puffing climbing the side of this hill <laughs> yeah the other side's about 55 uh, percent slope Wow. Versus the side that we're on is about a 30% slope. Wow, 55, it's like the, getting to be those crazy like German hillsides. Yeah. What was the first vintage for Jericho Canyon? So initially, back when they had uh, purchased the property, put in everything, they had no intention of starting a winery at all. No, Just going to no be farmers. Winery. Just sell all the fruit. And that's what they did for about 15 years, or a little less since years had to grow up. But in 1998... Uh, Leslie Rudd came up to Napa Valley and bought a piece of property and hired David Ramey as his winemaker. And while he was replanting the vineyards that were there, he asked him to go out and find some of the best fruit that'll make a $100 bottle of wine. Wow. And Ramey came to us and found this property, which was what we were kind of growing and doing, and said, we'll take all of it and we'll make a vineyard. Wow, it's, so so your, 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 your fruit went into Rudd in the early days. Yeah. Now, for those people who don't know it, Rudd is in a very exclusive little neighborhood. It's across the street from Screaming Eagles Vineyard, and it's really uh, all, all the uh, all the fancy kids play over there <laughs> yeah. uh, when it comes to Napa Valley Cult Cabs. So that your fruit went into those wine, that wine. That's uh, something else. Yeah, it was only that fruit. It's been your designate, so it's just that's kind of how it launched. Only Jericho Canyon was in those beginning years, and then when David Ramey left. Leslie Rudd and was starting his own venture. He launched his own label with the Jericho Canyon Vineyard Designate as well. So the, the, when you guys started making your wine then, exactly when? Uh, they uh, did a very nice job with those wines and it was very well received. So, of course, the danger of Vineyard Designates is sometimes people decide to change a little bit and moved away from selling fruit and decided, let's, let's make some wine, pretty much. And um, so knowing that that's what we were going to be doing, uh, my parents decided to, part of the deal with David Ramey, they would take some of the wine back that he had blended, made completely. So at bottling day, instead of bottling it all under Ramey, you just swap the labels and oh, I see. bottle okay. some press. So 2001 was our first Jericho Canyon label vintage, mm -hmm. but we didn't actually uh, pull all of our fruit back and have an estate wine because um, the wine was being built uh, until 2006. So you're 10 years in now. Yep. And then how'd you get in wine? I mean, your parents moved up here. It sounded like before you were born, maybe, huh? I was one year old when we... So, yeah, so, you're baby, so you essentially grew up here in the canyon, huh? Yeah. What was that like? Uh, it's, I was kind of, I mean, it's kind of a different childhood. <laughs> so I grew up during the summer months when the vineyard is active. 
during the rest of the time it's dormant. Uh, you don't really need to be around. You're just kind of maintenance on the property. So it kind of worked out where we would be over here during the summer and vacations. And I'd be working, I've been working in the vineyard since I was about four years old. And then- um, <laughs> What's a four year old do in a Napa Valley vineyard? I've told I was very good at sleeping underneath the vine. <laughs> you can pull suckers and things from the base of the, the vines. But then the rest of the year I was over on the big island and it wasn't until we built the winery and that becomes a year-round full-time job that we came back here and we're here full-time. And then did you study winemaking or how did you come into the job? So uh, I graduated in 2006, the exact year that we had the winery finished up. And so then I, of course, initially working in the vineyard from four until 18, I wasn't quite into... That, when you think about it, when you're 104 degrees or so. Yeah, right. yeah it gets hot up here in the summer. Working one way on your road to the other side. It's pretty tough. But in the winery, that's where I, what I really enjoyed. And so I started looking there when it was built and learning a bit in there. Then went to UC Davis for viticulture and enology. Went down and worked uh, harvest in New Zealand and worked harvest up here. It was a pretty nice time when I graduated because we had a bunch of nice winemakers yeah, stuff yeah. in the um, in the winery here because we also do a little custom crush so we have um, Heidi Barrett and Bo Barrett and at that time Thomas Brown uh, were custom crushing here as well and then we were just hiring um, good folks to be able to pick their brain <laughs> yeah we were just hiring Aaron Potty and Michelle Roland for our American consulting winemaker when I was graduating so wow. when you have a lot of names. It's hard to go off to another winery when you're like, oh, I can learn. Yeah, right. What could you learn there or... that you couldn't learn here? Yeah. How much How much Cabernet are you growing here, and what What are the other uh, percentages of what you're growing? It's about 75% Cabernet. Um, it's 0.4 acres, so percent or so of uh, Petit Verdot, another 0.4 acres of Malbec, three acres of Cabernet Franc, and uh, the remainder, which is about, what is that, uh, two three and a half acres, I think, of uh, Merlot. Mm -hmm. What's your favorite block out here? Can you point me to it? That would be the 10, 11, 12. It's right above the reservoir right there. So that's that's north, uh, north uh, east part of the canyon, huh? Yep. And uh, what do you like about that up there? It's it's always been a kind of a difficult-ish block for a lot of people, I think, um, because it's so incredibly tannic. Um, and big and massive. So it gives you, it gives you the backbone, huh? Yeah, a lot of people don't really know what to do with a lot of tannin and um, get a little scared of it, but it's really fun. I'm, this entire vineyard, it has an incredible amount of concentration structure and tannins really coming out of the soil. And, and those blocks in particular are just almost overbearing, but in an amazing way. So it sounds like your wines are really made to uh, sit down for a while and age, or are they kind of drinking hours, or...? It's a bit of a mix. I mean, we try to make it so that it's not, as they're released, they're not unapproachable, but, mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> but um, they also will age just about forever. Just tasting the wines back from 98 when Rudd had it and Ramey, which we try to go through and do a vertical every year, every other year. Oh, it's, a, it's a good day to be around. Yeah. <laughs> Running pretty low on the stores right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it happens. <laughs> but even, um, we had a 98 about a month ago, and that was just stunning. Still big wine, still amazing. Ten more years, no problem. Wow. I mean, the wines don't quit. 
And what, what was the first one? Did you start making wine? I came back for the 2011 harvest. 2011. Oh, fun one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and how did 11 go for you? It's, it's did you get very, it before the rain? No, quite the opposite. I oh, guess. really? <laughs> so up here with all these, with our vineyards and our site, um, it's perfect for pretty much anything you can kind of, anything that's thrown at you. Because there's no soil, we struggle every single year to get enough water to the vines. Um, there's no water holding capacity. Yeah, especially since it's so, so, so shallow, yeah. Mm -hmm. And then it just goes to rock, so it just disappears. So, um, I mean, the rain was nice and pleasant. It just disappeared. It's not like we were in mud no, or that's swampy. Good. Uh, the clusters are always super loose, and we don't have a ton of fruit hanging because it's a difficult growing site. So it's self-cropping at about a ton and a half an acre. Okay. Um, and then we have, which is really the kind of key part for those cooler years, that's uh, the 55 degree hillside mm -hmm. um, on the eastern hillside. That gets full western exposure, so it gets absolutely Ooh, a lot of sun during the day. A and... ton of sun. Anytime the sun's out, uh, it's it's getting up on the hill. So on this side, on the western side, where it's getting the eastern exposure, um, on cooler years, it ripens very slowly and just turns extremely elegant and beautiful. And then on the cooler years, maybe a little harder to ripen, but We'll just let it hang. Um, so 2011, we finished picking the second week of November. <laughs> wow, that's super late. Yeah. Holy smokes. Everyone was trying to get in late August or September. Like, oh, we'll just have to deal with it. <laughs> like, no, we'll just wait. <laughs> in organic, biodynamic, any of that going on here? Uh, we just kind of roll into whatever we feel is right. We were doing all hand hoeing to look to be organic, but it's a three-year process. Sure. So it's in... The next two years, I suppose we would be applying I mean, for being organic. Well, most folks I talk to don't aren't so concerned about organic for that certification or for marketing. It's just because it's better for the fruit, right? Yeah, that's why we don't care too much. We've never hunted it out. It's whatever is best for the property. So some of the issues with trying to strive for those, like striving for organic, um, a lot of the sulfur that you have to dust if you're organic, you have to make more passes through the vineyard, ah. which compacts the soil even more. And it sort of brings along its own mm -hmm. difficulties. Interesting. Yeah, so it's, it would do more damage uh, than the benefit of trying to become organic. But we have, um, we use the integrated pest management system from UC Davis, which is, among other things, we have uh, beneficial insect trees littered throughout the property, which harbor beneficial insects, mm -hmm. predatory insects. Mm -hmm. And from there, they just seed out and will take pretty good care of uh, killing pretty much everything that we don't like. So we don't generally have to spray for chemicals or anything like that. We're not trying to kill anything because we have bugs to do that work. It's mostly about weed control. And you got a and, couple uh, of big uh, condors flying around looking for <laughs> yeah. some kind of dead rodent somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> they get a good updraft from the canyon. <laughs> yeah, I bet. I bet. Well, should we go down to the winery and see what's going on down there? Yeah, sounds good. Great. All right, Nick, so now we're in the winery, actually in the caves. Tell me about the caves here. Put in caves back starting in the late 2002, um, early 2003, to put in before the winery, and it's about 6,000 square feet. And just right out of the volcanic uh, rock, huh? Yep. Yeah, there's a little window back there that uh, just shows the soil that's underneath all the vines and it shows exactly what I had to kind of auger through to get these caves stuck out. That's cool, and how many barrels can you hold down here? 
In total, I think we could potentially be doing about 530 if we were oh, three high at every spot. Mm -hmm. um, but we like to keep it more like two high since three high is it's hard to work. breaking. <laughs> <laughs> Terrific. All right, well, let's talk about the wines. Where are we going to start? So we'll start here. This is the 2011 Merlot we had there. Um, we don't generally make Merlot as a single varietal bottling. But um, every year we do something that's a little bit unique or different or something we haven't done before, mostly for our allocation members, but also for ourselves too. Mm -hmm. That would be fun. <laughs> and uh, 2011, the Merlot was... Oh, it's really floral, a lot of violet and really pretty fruit. Which is exactly what the, the problem was when we were going through all the blending. We were tasting everything and tasted the Merlot and um, normally it goes into the blends or go somewhere else and smelled it and tasted it and like that's extremely pretty how <laughs> well, let's just bottle Merlot I don't want to blend that so we, <laughs> we didn't get into the Merlot business <laughs> yeah. yeah it's so pretty yeah. it's always pretty big like almost Cabernet like um, when you palette yeah, yeah. <laughs> it starts out it, it starts out like Merlot it starts out with that kind of velvety rich but then the tan has come forward and like <laughs> you feel it on the front of your teeth and but not in a bad way it's got a terrific body and it's i think the sort of you know back in the late 80s and early 90s merlot kind of got a bad rap because so many people were making crappy merlot well there's a, a huge amount of uh merlot being produced that everyone called fat and flabby and and this is the antithesis of that yeah <laughs> good acid balanced out in that you know, that, yeah, leaning towards Cabernet, that almost that, like slightly cranberry kind of thing going on. Is this is this available, or is it just through the uh, club? Uh, currently, it's available. Uh, everything goes out through the allocation first, and whatever else is kind of doesn't get soft up there. <laughs> we mm -hmm. can uh, move out there, but mostly just directly through the winery. And, and most of your wines are sold through allocation through the winery, or do you have? Uh, yeah. Do you have any, any retail distributorship throughout the country? We have very few actual distributors, but um, they're only in a couple cities, really, rather than states. So for folks who want to get Jericho Canyon wine, the best bet is to go either come here for a visit or uh, uh, sign up at the wine club or buy it online at your site. Yeah, pretty much everything is through the winery. Even when it goes out to distribution, it's all meant for um, on-premise, so it's all for restaurants. Mm -hmm. So we're only sending out maybe 10 cases to um, a certain state. And there's a very little retail, but if you want to, you got to work to get it. Yeah, retail, that's only really in um, New York because they... Because New York. Yeah, they <laughs> only let you... They don't let you discriminate between retail and... Online. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Interesting. Anyone can buy it if they call up and you have it in stock. They have to sell it to you. Your distributor has to sell it to you. You mm -hmm. can't choose your accounts. I see, I see. Well, that, this Merlot is just absolutely stunning. It's so pretty. Good choice on uh, going just <laughs> solely with, uh, with, with, with Merlot as opposed to putting it into a blend somewhere. This is the 11, so is that like the current release? Do you guys hold back your release a little bit? So all of our wines are aged for two years in the cave and barrel, and new oak and once used French oak barrels. And then we hold another two years in bottle before we actually will release it. The Merlot is, since it's not really a, a normal wine for us, 
we just held on to it until we decided we wanted to. So it was ready to <laughs> go. So your barrel program then is uh, new and once used, mm -hmm. so then you rotate them out. Yeah. Well, that's a pretty aggressive uh, wood program, huh? Yeah, when you have uh, huge tannins and a lot of body to the wines, I mean, when you taste that wine, you don't really see that there's a lot of oak in it, but that's about 75% new French oak. Really? Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't rip you like... It's not Chateau 2 by 4 by any means. No, you, we, I mean, we could put on 100% new French oak, and only then you're kind of beginning to notice that it's getting... Over <laughs> Yeah, the, the big, huge oak thing. We try to integrate them very well. They're, they're not noticed. Great. All right, what's next? So this next wine here is the 2012 Chimera. Um, the Chimera, of course, being the mythical beast, where it's the joining of a bunch of different creatures. Every kind of culture had their own Chimera. And for us, this is a Meritage blend, so it's our joining of beasts, all the different varietals. We have Cab Merlot, Cab Franc, Petit Verdot. Sort of uh, appropriate, especially for Calistoga, too. It's that, it's that chimera of soil types coming together from like every direction, and that's really cool. Yeah, back when um, Rudd and Ramey were making the wines from 98 to, I believe, 2004, all those wines, they were always Meritage blend. None of them were Cabernet, but then uh, right at the very end, uh, Ramey switched over to making a Cabernet instead of the blend, and we just continued on making Cabernet. So 2012 was actually the first year that we brought back a Meritage blend oh, as okay. a kind of sister wine to the Cabernet. Interesting. Deep color. And what's the blend on this? I would call it proprietary since oh, people um, tend to get caught up in blend numbers and stuff. We just like people to enjoy the wine. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. Again, really pretty. Really floral nose. And everything's integrated. It's not like, you know, sometimes you put your nose in a glass and it's like, oh, there's some fruit over here and over here it's earthy. And here it's just all sort of really focused. And for all the wines, everything we produce, it's really all about balance where a lot of people find claim they find balance in numbers, and so they're looking for pH and TA and your alcohol all to be certain levels because they view that as balance. But for us, it's all about what it I tastes was, like. I was told there'd be no math. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and this wine, again, it's, it starts out really luscious. I mean, just that great texture. It's velvety. It's, it's, the fruit is screaming sunshine. I mean, it's, it's, um, it's got earthiness and... In, again, then in the, those tannins kind of finish it off and uh, a good acidity to balance it all out. This wine, you know, I'd love to see this in five, ten years for sure. I mean, it's, it's drinking beautifully right now. This and a, a good hunk of lamb or steak or something, and you're happy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm, that's the, always the goal with the wines where hopefully it's not going to be 30 years before you want to open a bottle. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, everything doesn't have to be, you know, so, some old school style Barbaresco yeah. that you can't <laughs> even look at for 20 years. But on the plus side, if people do want to hold it for 30 years. It's not going to be a problem. Yeah, I think I think there's a, a certain enjoyment that you could have across the life of this wine. You could enjoy it now for one thing, and in five years for something entirely different. Mm -hmm. And it. it I'm sure it does that in the glass as well. I'm sure over the course of an evening, you know, two hours, 
this Decant thing develops. <laughs> Quite a bit of decanting, aeration, pour pouring. And what do you think about that? Um, that your wine is predominantly a restaurant wine and it's not in people's homes. I mean, obviously, you're making wine for food and that's where the food is. But I mean, what do you what, what do you think about that? That it's almost solely in restaurants. And, uh, and, not, and, and take take away the business aspect of it. I mean, obviously, for a business aspect, it's very good. But you know, just as a winemaker, you want people to have your wines, right? Yeah, but it's a little, I guess, kind of different perspective, where if you put it into a wine shop, people don't know anything about it. It's just a wine that's sitting there. It could be anything else they're drinking. Um, they don't know the hillside it came from. They don't know. Uh, the region really where it's coming from how it's made so the people that are normally drinking our wines and buying our wines because we're always happy to more hand sell from the psalm yeah we know the psalms we go out and visit the markets and we talk to the people there when they come out here we invite them up to the vineyard and they look at the vineyard Uh, we're always happy when people come out here and i mean everyone who buys our wine pretty much has come to the winery and they know where it's coming from um because a lot of wine is about the place. I mean, that's what it's Carabar all about. The place. Is. That's, that's it's, why we're yeah. here talking. It's all about the people and the place. If it weren't for that, it'd be just some commodity product that could have come from anywhere in the world. Mm-hmm. And then, at also the same time, I was uh, looking at it a while ago and realized if we sold our wine in distribution, if we only did distribution, sold them to all the different states, we'd be sending, I think, like 20 cases. Each state, which doesn't so go very far. Most shops can't even touch it. For, you know, there's no big chain that could touch it for for 20 cases. So you'd be in little shops. That's a tough sell then at that point. Well, it's. I mean, then we'd have none. You'd go nowhere else. Yeah. There really just isn't enough to be selling out in retail. So we go into the places that we want to be. Um, that's why we go into the cities and the markets that we want to be, where we see people who like our wine. That's why we like Chicago. It's a really big. Uh, steak city i mean it's mm-hmm. that's a big market texas new york uh in florida oddly enough but, uh, really yeah and then uh, more recently into las vegas and nevada oh, so a lot of steakhouses in vegas yeah <laughs> all right so tell me about the last one so this last one is the 2012 cabernet sauvignon so this is the of course the kind of the flagship what we've been creating since 2006 um so this is the deep rich the, color very dense. Like all the wines, I mean, even with the Merlot, the Chimera, and the Cabernet, it's we embrace the, the tannins and the structure and what we have here. You don't really have any other choice. Yeah, right. you got to make what you make, right? What yeah. you have. A lot of people will fight it, um, especially on the hillside. Some uh, mountain fruit and soft people will try to avoid it so it's softer, more approachable, but you get the density, or not quite the density, but you get a lot of the, the body. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's just not the way that we kind of see it. We view it as this is what it's being produced, this is what well, yeah, well, we're going to Well, it speaks produce. to the place. If, it, mm-hmm. if you were to strip those tannins out of it, it wouldn't speak to this place. It would be it's from somewhere else. Pretty different. So our wines, like this Cabernet, is very dense. Quite a big Cabernet. <laughs> yes, this is this is Napa Valley Cabernet Sauvignon. <laughs> I mean, it's it's uh, it's rich and it's luscious and it makes my mouth water. And again, for twelve, it's beautifully integrated. It's drinking of a wine that's more mature than 
not, 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 not in an oxidized way, but the, I find that as a wine ages, sort of all those elements start coming together a little more, they marry a little more, and that's what this wine has. All the elements play beautifully together. Is it 100% Cabernet? Uh, this one has a tiny blend in there, um, so it's a tiny bit of, just a tiny bit, yeah. of uh, Petit Verdot and Cabernet Franc, but a small amount. Every year is different, just like all the blends, it's, they're never going to be the mm. same. If I had to ask you what the soul of the place is, what's the soul of the place? I think it's it's very similar to the grapes, the, the wine, everything, where it's just everything's a bit of a, I'm not going to say a struggle, but it's all hard work. It's all a lot of energy and a ton of energy we can put in everywhere. So all the vines, I mean, they struggle every day that they're up there. They don't have soil. They don't have water. Um, and so they're... with. A, bunch of pretty much hard work for them. They produce a very small amount of really rich, concentrated fruit. And just like everyone here, I mean, we're a very small winery. It's, um, our parents are still active. And myself, uh, Derek helps me in the cellar. Uh, Stefan helps with um, when people come to visit. And Tara, my fiance now, is also here. And everyone just really enjoys what they do and likes to come in and work to produce an amazing product and to share it with people. And, Enjoy that. So it's people don't shy away from actually getting into it. You're you're a young man for making a wine like this. Uh, have you have, have have you thought about that? Or <laughs> yeah, I get that frequently. <laughs> yes. Does it uh, surprise you when you hear that? Or no, I mean, I a lot of people in the wine industry, for the most part, it's second life or third life. Um, so they're, especially in Napa Valley. Especially in Napa. Um, so they're coming in after doing something completely different. And they're starting from scratch. And uh, so I'm sure they don't get the question, even if they're 40, 50, 60 years old, you just expect that they've been doing it for a while and you're like, oh, you've, you've enjoyed this. But I, for me, it's more second nature since I've been doing I've been in the vineyard, which is obviously the biggest part of yeah, winemaking is all here forever, and then went right into making wine and going to UC Davis, of course, with a technical background and everything. So every, I, I mean, a lot of people will come in, or you hear them talking about their wine, and they're all worried and stressed about their wine and checking it every day, and um, because I, I think there's just a a way that people don't quite understand what's happening so much, and so you you get overly protective of it. Um, whereas I I don't ever really feel that I know what to do to make sure that everything is going to go perfectly smoothly. Um, I mean, as long as everything's kept at a certain level, everything's tested frequently, and obviously we'll run our tests and uh, topped and tasted and everything, you're not really going to have any problems. You're going to be producing wines that you don't have to be worried about. Just take care of what's going on in the vineyard, and then yeah, everything else sort of follows on its own then, huh? Yeah, if you're on top of everything, and if you're not kind of being too relaxed, and just saying, okay, yeah, it'll be fine in there, or if you're not over-coddling it, I guess. Um, and of course, we coddle it a bit, but... Well, you know, it's, it's your baby, right? <laughs> yeah, but um, if you know the steps to take and what you're doing, it's never a problem. Um, and I mean, we've been doing this for a very long time, never have any problems with our wines. That's, 
we don't have to filter, we don't have to do these things because everything is kept perfectly clean, sterile, sanitized, everything is, um, I mean, made to make these wines the easiest that they'll be, kind of, like the easiest life that they'll possibly have. Um, that's what we want for them. Sure. And do you take visitors here? Uh, we do, by appointment. We I'm have sure visitors coming in. Well, Nick, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it. It was great uh, to see the canyon. It was fabulous to taste the wine. And I highly recommend if you're ever up in the north end of Napa Valley, or even if you're in the south end of Napa Valley, take the trip up to Jericho Canyon, make an appointment, come and see uh, Nick and uh, this gorgeous piece of property and some stunning wines. Thanks for your time. Thank you. For John's tasting notes on the wines from this episode, go to www.thehonestpoorpod.com. Make sure you catch every episode by subscribing to The Honest Pour with John Lennart at iTunes, Stitcher, or the Google Play Store. Also, be sure to like us on Facebook at The Honest Pour with John Lennart and follow us on Twitter at The Honest Pour. This has been The Honest Pour with John Lennart. Music by Kevin McLeod. 